Welcome to The Open Bell, a podcast for trumpet players, by trumpet players, and a cornet guy. I'm your host, Bill Stoman, and I'm joined by my good friends and fellow trumpet geeks, Joey Tartell and the historically hushed Brian Appleby Weinberg. This episode of The Open Bell is brought to you by the World Trumpet Federation. If you're looking for the truth about trumpet and seeking some inspiring new approaches for performing and teaching, then check us out at worldtrumpetfederation.com for helpful videos, informative articles, and the truth about trumpet. Home to the Open Bell podcast, the WTF is here to serve, inspire, and help. So go to www.worldtrumpetfederation.com today. And the Pooch Mute. Does your dog hate your practicing? Does Fido growl, bark, or whine like a flutist every time you start to play? Well, have we got a product for you. Pooch Mute. That's right. The first product of its type designed specifically for trumpet players and the dogs who own them. Pooch Mute's patented design is a free-blowing in-tune mute that honestly does very little to quiet your trumpet. But what it does do is launch a tasty treat across the room each and every time you play a concert F. In no time at all, your dog will be begging you to practice. Start using Pooch Mute, and your puppers will begin to love the trumpet like never before. Also available is the Pooch Mute Magnum Flugelhorn version for large breeds. With its patented conical shape, no offense Brian, it holds even more treats to make a concert goer out of your canine. If you order using code WTF2021, you'll also receive the all-new canine cut mute with its versatile serve and scoop feature for faster cleanups to get you back to those Clark studies in no time at all. Go to poochmute.com to get yours today. The Open Bell Podcast is comprised of three segments, warming up, couple things, and no offense. We use these segments to discuss, debate, and deliberate information that we deem important to trumpeting life. Gentlemen, shall we? This segment of warming up is once again brought to you by our friends at Chop Saber. Made with all natural ingredients, Chop Saber is the official lip treatment of the World Trumpet Federation and the Open Bell Podcast. Doctor, re- doctor recommended and trumpet player approved, Chop Saber would be your choice for lip care in a harsh, cold, windy world. Speaking of which, Brian, what kind of conical conjuring have you created for this episode? Well, I'm glad you asked, Bill. So uh, my segment, my part of warming up is uh, is a question about mouthpieces. So I think really it's more directed towards Bill. So this hold is on, the wow. uh, <laughs> hold on a second. Oh, I see what wow. you did. Wow, totally. Joey knows nothing about mouthpieces. Nothing about mouthpieces. So so the it's it's two it's two questions really. So the first question is I've you know because I've restarted uh, my playing. Um, today's day 25, and I've been playing my trumpet. Um, and my trumpet mouthpiece, but the youth brass band has also restarted virtually. And so I played along with them um, on Sunday, but on my cornet. And visually, my the rim of my trumpet mouthpiece looks much wider than the rim of my cornet mouthpiece. The okay. cornet mouthpiece felt much more comfortable playing it on Sunday, which I found interesting. And I want to know, Bill, if you could talk a little bit about the width of the trumpet of the trumpet <laughs> rim <laughs> and I'll, why I'll that would you, be a I'll little bit. You, I'll see you guys next week. <laughs> <laughs> but this is only the first part of my question. Okay, so go ahead. So if you can just talk about why that might be, Bill, why the cornet mouth, the picket cornet mouthpiece is so much more comfortable than the, it's a copy of a Mount Vernon, a Bach Mount Vernon mm-hmm. trumpet mouthpiece. 
Well, obviously the different parts of the mouthpiece affect different things and the, the width of the rim affects comfort, articulation and flexibility. I think those are the three things for me that that impacts. But I think maybe what you're experiencing is where the high point of the rim hits your face. And so Pickett is, is what Peter has done with the rims on his mouthpieces. And uh, I think people like you and I, for example, have given him great advice along the way on how to design Holy crap. a mouthpiece. <laughs> uh, but I think where the high point is on Peter's mouthpiece actually makes it really comfortable, even though the rim is more thin than your trumpet mouthpiece. Yeah, it's, I've, I've just found it fascinating and just noticed it in, in stark relief when I was playing along. Okay, thanks. All right, so Joey, I'm actually going to let you totally <laughs> off the hook here. So we have never actually heard the story of how you got Pickett to go from a wick coronet mouthpiece to his... Oh. Oh. Classic to his traditional British coronet mouthpiece, Joey. What was the magic ingredients? How did you actually facilitate that happening? Okay, before the before he goes into this, I want credit <laughs> for being the one who was shushed in this conversation. <laughs> well, you weren't. This Initially, was a separate conversation. This is a separate conversation. Okay. If you remember, if you remember how this went down, we were all in <laughs> rehearsal, and Brian said, "Yeah, Peter sent us some stuff, but they don't really work." And I said, do you want me to talk to him for you? <laughs> and I said, yes. And so Wait, I found Peter. Was this before or after you said to me, stop talking, and then said to Peter, let me tell you Here's, what he wants. I think it was after that. <laughs> <laughs> and to, now, to be perfectly honest, I do not remember everything that was said in that conversation. Wow, okay. What I did say to him is what you had told me, which is, here's what... Here's what I was looking for, but here's what we ended up with. So I was very precise in saying, here's what he's looking for in these kinds of mouthpieces. And he wrote down some things, we sketched out some things. He goes, oh, I can do that. Wow, because that's like pretty much exactly what I told him, and that's not what... It's, but it's not. See, this is the difference in how you speak to... <laughs> and I, this, is, this is important in, in communication styles. How, what you think you're saying is not nearly as important as what people are hearing. Sure, <laughs> this is great, right? <laughs> yeah, so this it, is great. It, like, uh, how many times uh, have you said to a student, um, yeah, listen, I mean, that sounds great, but, and you don't mean that it sounds great. Now, that student might have just heard, hey, he just said I sounded great. <laughs> right. You did, But you didn't mean that, but you did say it. Yeah, yeah, sure. So the communication style becomes very, very clear. So when you're speaking to somebody who makes mouthpieces, you would want to speak to them in in their terms because if you're speaking in how things feel how they interpret that that's not going to help may or may not work and there sure. are times like you know i've worked with carl hammond a lot over the last few years and at this point i'll go in and say okay listen here's what i can do and here's what i can't do and he knows me well and i know him well so i'm not talking to him about hey could we talk about moving the high point like bill's talking about or can we open up this a little i'm saying I'm running up against, I love this, but I'm having some problems here. And he says, hold on, let me try some things. And he can translate that because he knows my playing. Now, when you were talking to Peter, he didn't know you're playing at all. Right. So you're, but if you're talking about, here's what I'm looking for the outcome to be. And he's like, well, this is what normally works. Well, that, right. may, <laughs> that may or may not work. Then you're going to have to have a much more specific conversation until somebody like, because Peter's great. You know, he, 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 it's a great playing. mouthpiece. It's well, fantastic. And that's my experience with Peter is that I've tried this stuff and said, this is what I 
this is what I'm experiencing. This is what I want and didn't get into it from his perspective. But like with Carl, he came, he comes right back with the answer. Right. Right. If you're in the room and able to do that, that's the yeah. great way to do it. But if you're yeah. talking in the abstract, that might not be a great way to do it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's a communication style issue. So, Brian, were you, you weren't there and playing for him then when you were trying. This was all like email. No, no. They, were doing this all, oh. they were doing this all by email and, and phone calls. That's why it wasn't working. Yeah. Yeah, and and Joey was literally the magic ingredient, which is why it's so great that he's not on the website. <laughs> Perfect. Well, he is. It's just as others. Others. Well, others. he's used to that. That's actually his stage name. That is. And he's others. I'm others. everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> you guys are terrible people. We find such joy in that. Yes. <laughs> yes, we, we do. do. You get a credit for enough other stuff. <laughs> Wait, what this. would that be? <laughs> uh, Joey, what do you got for us today? I have a very simple question that struck me this week. As you guys know, I play all my horns every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I've noticed in, in this whole past several months when none of us have been performing on a regular basis, there are things that I do when I'm getting ready for performances. You know, I want to make sure that everything's ready to go, that when I'm just practicing every day may not be part of the same routine. So here's what struck me. How often do you guys oil your valves? Because I'll tell you, when I'm getting ready for performance, before I step out on stage often, I'll make sure, because you want to oil your valves before they stick, right? Because I've had students that are like, oh, man, they got my jury and everything sticks. And I'm like, well, you should. That's still your fault. You didn't take care of it, <laughs> right? In the same, you know, so before a performance. But if I'm not performing, I don't think about it as much. And I have noticed for me personally a lot less than I used to because they're not sticking and i think there's a regular practice thing practicing and practicing well related to my former voodoo topic of playing horns mm-hmm. into shape i also think if you're playing them all of the time and playing them well they don't need as much oil thoughts hmm. I, I think every few days i order i'm now that i'm back playing I, every few days I, i'll oil the valves on the b flat like every three maybe really four mm-hmm. i'm like nowhere that. near that yeah, I got some ideas on this. So for me, it's a brand of oil, and I think different brands of oil mix with your saliva and chemistry differently. Oh, wow. Now yeah. we're getting wow. somewhere. Now yeah. I do. I do. That's and deep. I've thought this for years. So for example... And Pandora's box is open. And is open. So for years, and I will say this too, back when I had my Edwards horns, those valves are were like phenomenal. Well, yeah, those gets and valves, you could... You yeah. could, if we found a Getson buried in the backyard that had yes. been there since 1972, in the dirt, out of the dirt, you just pull it up, wipe it off, and the valves would the valves work. Would be fine. Be <laughs> they will be faster and quieter than Brian's valves right now. Yes, but that's a low bar. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that is a pretty low bar. So back in those days, I was using Zaja, vanilla scented oil, and like I, I recall oiling my valves once a year. There it is. Joey still oh, has it. I have some Zaja vanilla. You can't get it. Right now. On your desk. Wow. Yeah, on my it's desk. It's the I've got unicorn right here. of valve oil. Yeah, it was good. Um, then I went to this other synthetic brand. I can't remember the name. It's a white bottle with bold green letters. I just can't. Anyway. <laughs> it doesn't come to me. Uh, that was not a great experience for me. It's un- unknowable. Yes. Yes. Unrecallable. Yeah. And uh, no that one could know what that stuff would be. did not work for me <laughs> at all. How many and bottles of valve oil do you have on your desk right now, Joey? All the bottles. <laughs> All well, of them. this for rotary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My rotary oil. 
<laughs> I also that's have the Zaja. When I I was I showed up once. And that's it was the a, third bottle he's held up. Have the I have the Zaja bacon. The right bacon. Now. Like I gave yeah, the both that of is you guys fourth, the fourth bottle. I love I love that stuff. The, the bacon <laughs> sauce. Is another something you were just about to show, uh, hold that, up? That the the bacon stuff is the stuff that like you oil your valves, you forget about the next day. You take that breath and go, oh god. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, this I had is a student just years ago that oh, they had uh, she got the uh, Zaja chocolate. I'm not a huge chocolate fan. It started to play the lesson. I was like, okay, we're, we're done. Get out. <laughs> I gotta go get a candy bar. I, I'm out of here. <laughs> so anyway, I think it mixes differently for folks now since we've all switched to Burt Bio Oil. Yep. Right. Um, I yeah, I, I would agree with Joey. You're like, I'm not going through a lot of oil. But everything's cool. Like it works really well, and I'm not having to use a lot. Well, yeah, that's what I'm noticing. Is that like uh, I'm not making sure because there's a performance, so I need make sure an oil. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, when's the last time I've oiled my valves? But they're not sticking. <laughs> right. But they're fine. Yeah. But they're working yeah. really, very, very well. Mine gets yeah. sluggish after about three or four days. So well, I, that's I, well, stop I, them banging again. on them so hard. You, Brian, <laughs> I, you oil valves more than anyone I've ever been around. I think this is a you problem, like Brian. Like in brass band, he would set up, you know, we'd all get all of our mutes out and you get your pencil and get your music on the stand. And then he would have to have a bottle of oil on his stand. Yeah. Well, I usually have a bottle there. Well, it's in reach, but it's not like there. Like he uses it more than his pencil. <laughs> Why do I want to write anything down? It's already there in ink. Why would you not just oil the valves before rehearsal? This is another episode because the way Brian marks parts is also terrible. <laughs> Oh, we got it. We should have a great discussion we, about that. Because I, mean, I will would... tell you, Ed Cord, my <laughs> former colleague who just retired two years ago, Ed Cord is the oh, the quintessential, the maestro of marking parts. Yeah, I've really? never seen I've never seen any I've never seen anything like it. We should talk about that someday. He's unbelievable. Yeah. Brian well, Brian is equally terrible. <laughs> sharing I'm the other end of the spectrum. I'm I'm there with awful. Brian. I am I am I'm with Brian on this. You know, my my general rule, and we'll get to this later, is this: if I miss it twice, I have to mark it, and I don't want to miss anything twice, so I don't want to mm. mark anything. Yeah. <laughs> I, on the other hand, mark everything. Oh, see, I love marking yeah. the. Yeah. So sharing a stand was interesting with Bill. It really was. <laughs> Just like, are you going to mark that for us? No. But I, <laughs> oh. all right, Bill, what do you yeah. got for us today? Well, I was thinking about, uh, you've know, got some students with recitals coming up this semester and all that. And I, w one of my favorite things to do is sit with them and plan these recitals, you know, a semester ahead of time and all that. And I'm realizing that I have a pattern to this and, um, and it's sort of put, put us in this position where I tend to do recitals in mostly chronological order, which means that typically uh, we're starting on small horns and moving to big horns across the recital. So you start with a Baroque piccolo thing, you move to one of the classical concerti, um, then you start to move to something like one of the French pieces and something modern on B flat. And, and so as the way it works out typically is that we move from small horns to big horns across the recital. And I wondered if you guys in your own programming, do you do that or even think about it? I actually like the idea of going small horn to big horn from a, from a concept of playing trumpet, right? But not from, not for any kind of historical purpose. Like I'm looking for what's going to be uh, two things, and in this order, one, uh, what's the best program from a musical standpoint? Because if mm -hmm. the first two things, for example, are both super long, and then the other two things are super short, that's just bad programming. 
So I right. do want the programming to make musical sense. Of course. Yeah. And then also allow the recitalist to feel comfortable so that they're going to be successful. So I want mm-hmm. both of those things to work, but in that order. Like I want right. to but this is the easiest way through. I'm like, yeah, but that doesn't make musical sense. We need to find both right. of those. Oh, no, it has happen. to be. Yeah. But I had never really considered the chronological order part of it, even though there are ways where it just does work out like that. That is often yeah. very good programming as uh, some of the piccolo pieces we'll be using, especially uh, when we're looking for undergrads, are relatively short. Yep. And starting on a piccolo, if you're playing well and comfortable, you don't want to get blown out or feel uncomfortable is a great place to start from. Right. And it can feel like you play your first five-minute piece, have really good success, and like, oh, well, that was easy enough, and now we move right. on, and, and it's gone. Yeah, yeah. You build some confidence. Although I must say, I'm not shocked based on your performance in some of our games that you hadn't considered anything historical <laughs> <laughs> in the programming. Jeez, that was wow. clear to me. <laughs> Shots I'm not, fired. Wow. I'm not stunned by that at all. <laughs> <laughs> nice Brian what do you think yeah same thing I, I do like programming from small horns to large horns and so often it does work out chronologically um, but there are people who would rather play a large horn first and end on a high horn mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've heard recitals like that and uh, I mean for my face that doesn't really work but uh, for a lot of people that works great and uh, so they sort of playing E flat in the second half of the program and then ending on a piccolo piece, um, you know, more power to them. Yeah. I tend to go the other way as well. I like to start on pick and then yeah. if I'm then move out through the horns to toward the bigger horns. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Interesting. But yeah, yeah, how it works musically is, is much more important. And then, you know, you've got to be really careful for some students about how they're just going to make their way through the program. Right. You know, you probably don't want, if you program the aways in Sonata, you probably don't want them playing for 20 minutes to start the second half of their program. Right. No, that could be mm-hmm. a mistake. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Great. Well, I couldn't be more excited because it's time for Tromba Trivia again, <laughs> oh, boys. <man. laughs> I was going to, listen, I got to be honest, I was going to do backboard bingo today, but I'm so excited about the music that Joey developed for Trompa Trivia that I just wanted to hear, hear that lead in again. I worked very hard on that. And here we go. <laughs> All right, Trompa Trivia, question one. During World War II, oh, this company had a shortage of materials and manpower. As a result, they would often mix parts and reuse parts from horns that were returned to their ownership. In the cases where such things were done, an X was added to the serial number, or another digit was added to the original serial number. Name the company. I have I hints if you I, want them. I want to take a first guess. Mm-hmm. Is this Selmer? No. Oh, because I do know that they were they had used shell casings and things like that. As, oh, interesting. That kind of metal. Yeah. Using yeah. and making some instruments. This company was not pressed into service to make parts for or have access to parts for the war effort, yeah. by the way. Okay. So they uh, were Is this an own. American company? It is. Oh, uh, then there's my you, problem. I you was want in some France. Hints? <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, ain't no mountain high enough. Straddle that line. 37, 38, whatever it takes, so and I'm that would out. Be, that would be the Bach Corporation. The Bach, the Bach Corporation, Corporation, right. 
Yeah, Vincent Bach. I, and I I never heard about this thing with the X on the serial number before. Wow. No, It'd be I didn't interesting know to, to ask Josh Landers about that. Yeah, Josh would definitely to see know. If he has encountered any of those those horns. Yeah. Wow. Oh, I'm sure I'm sure he has. Yeah. All right. Question two. Trauma trivia. We're over one. This well, yeah, I was gonna say you guys are O for O for. Yeah. This particular trumpet was developed by a former principal trumpet player who played in Detroit and Chicago. Using measurements from his original French Besson and also using parts he fashioned himself, he created a version of a trumpet that was sold through a network of professionals. Upon his death, the company was run by his son and eventually sold to Leisure Time Industries before it was bought by King Musical Instruments. Holy crap. Wow. This is, this is interesting. So the son took over That's the company. The that... son also invented a board game, which is pretty crazy, which okay. is how it ended up with Leisure Time. Take us through that one more time. So yeah. we're talking about this uh -huh. is somebody who played in Detroit, played in Chicago, in Chicago, started making horns, built his own horns, and then sold those horns just through you know professional contacts and all that. And then uh, when he died, his son took over the company and sold sure. the whole thing to Leisure Time and then to King. Wow. You want some hints? Detroit, Chicago. Oh, my gosh. Sure, we're going to need some hints. Respect your elders. Okay, so this is Bench. There you go. Oh, look at that. That was yeah, one of bench. my guesses, but I, I, I had L.A. in my head. You didn't mention L.A. He moved out to L.A. I, I after didn't, that. I thought that was too much of a giveaway, honestly, yeah. but you're right, because it was a network <laughs> of professionals in L.A., and that would have been the kicker. That would have been the giveaway. Right? So, yes. Because, yeah, so respect your elders. Yeah, Eldon Benj. Eldon Benj, yeah. Yeah, the wow. Burbank had, Trump at the L.A. Benj, right? I had, a, I, had a, I had a Benj for a little while growing up. Yeah, I yeah. remember the Benj, like the valves were like... This they tall. were really long. <laughs> this, really long. This is yeah. why I was thinking Benj wasn't ready to guess it first. If you look, the giveaway from copying, copying the old French Bessons is the second valve slide goes the other way, is, is angled oh, the other way. Right. And all of all of Benj's were that way because they that's yeah that's one of those things they yes. took. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Cool. Good for you. Yeah. All right. One I, for one. Question three. This company brought you exceptional instruments such as the super, the recording, the opera, and the ambassador. What was the full name of this company's founder? Oh crap! <laughs> I can. Yeah, that I was have, too easy. I have I have F E Olds, right? Is mm -hmm. that right? It is but F E Olds. I, but I, I don't know his name. Know what that stands for? I, I don't know what it stands for. Mm -hmm. I do know the I do know that though. No, if it ain't. If you want new, to talk to Brian for a second, I can hop it, on Google and it, figure it out. Well, but you, I do know, F E F E is right, right? Yeah, it is F E Olds, and so you already don't need the first clue, which is if it ain't new, it's. Olds. Oh, you oh, would have gotten yeah. it. Right. Get in the car. Frank. Oh, it was Frank. Frank. Right. Yeah, and not a solo competition. Frank Ensemble? <laughs> Frank. <laughs> That's right. That's his name. Frank, Frank? Ensemble Olds. Olds. <laughs> Ellsworth Smith. Yeah. Oh, Ellsworth. Oh, right. Ellsworth, yeah. Like F.E. Olds. Now, here's the interesting thing I found out while doing this research. Do I get partial credit for having you do. F.E. Yeah, right you, off you, the bat? Yeah, you got F.E. Olds. That's good. All the credit. Well, F.E. Olds, while traveling on a cruise ship to South America with his wife and some other prominent Californians on the SS City of Los Angeles, uh, he died of a sudden heart attack and was buried at sea. I did not know that. Oh, my. Yeah. That's, wow. So you go out on a cruise and like, so his and wife like loses like, her well, husband sorry. on a cruise. Uh, nothing we could do. So kaplunk. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> That's horrible. That's, I know. That's pretty dark. Yeah. Just another reason not to take a cruise. <laughs> I thought you were going to say to play in Olds. <laughs> a 
I've got, that was I've got, my first torn, man. It was an old ambassador. I've got the old recording right here. Yeah, I know you do. Yeah. I've got my eye on it. Okay. <laughs> Question four. This brand of trumpet was a favorite among jazz players, no offense, Brian, and was the choice of Miles <laughs> Davis, Rafael Mendez, and Conrad Gazzo. In fact, when Mendez switched to the to his olds to playing olds trumpets, his trumpet was an exact copy of this instrument. Olds copied this instrument to make his new olds trumpet. Was that the Martin? Nope. Gosh, I know. Yeah, I was going to say the Those Martin. Guys Martins. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, some hints. Uh, okay. Wee oui, wee. Oui. <laughs> Sounds abbreviated to me. You and me, ha. <laughs> oh, the French Besson. Yeah, the, the Besson, Besson, Besson the Brevet. The Brevet. So the Miha yeah. was more of a lead horn, but the Brevet was more of a jazz horn. Oh, look at that. Yeah, the Besson Brevet. Wow. Wow. Swing and a miss. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> not close. Wow. That's, yeah. You guys. I will, thankfully, there's only one more. We can um, miss that one, too. <clears throat> I, I'm all the confidence <laughs> will. in the world. I will. In addition to being well-known trumpet builders, what very specific thing do these men have in common? Eldon Benj, Reynolds Schilke, Vincent Bach, and Foster Reynolds. <laughs> They're all trumpet makers, but they share a common thing. Give us the people again. Benj? Eldon Benj, Reynolds Schilke, Schilke, Vincent Bach, and Vincent. Foster Reynolds. Hmm... Foster Reynolds. I don't know anything about him. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing yeah. at all. Uh, huh. It's not Foster Brooks. Okay. Yeah. Uh, some hints. Team effort. Right. So did they all did they all play in the same orchestra? Nope. Okay. No need to invite Rowan. This will be the this will be the giveaway. Let's form a committee. They all worked for Martin? <laughs> they made the Martin committee. They made they, they are made the, the Martin they committee. They're the, the committee. Wow. They're the committee that designed the Martin they're committee. The committee. And, That's and right, right now, Dr. James Moore is screaming in his device. Yeah. Again. <laughs> He's so, gonna be hoarse. He's not gonna be able to do lectures. Right. Interestingly, there was another person, and this is Joey, this is really I thought of you when I read this. Uh there was someone else, and they don't know his name. There it is. Um, <laughs> He's the so, guy who did all the work. And, and others. <laughs> and others. Uh, it says, Elton Benz, Reynolds Schoke, Vincent Bach, Foster Reynolds, and another committee member that whose name they don't recall. <laughs> but he was assumed to be like a CSO guy or something who I was just that. someone in Chicago, because that's where they all were. But, yeah, the Martin, that's why it's called the committee. Committee, right. I, yeah, wow. That's, that's what, when you said that, it struck. Yeah. That, that's Designed why it was called the committee. By committee. By committee. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's fantastic. That's How's beautiful. That? Oh, man. What a great very round. Very impressive. Drama trivia. You guys, once again, did not disappoint. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, now so time bad. for a couple so of things. Bad. As we all continue on our personal musical journey, we strive for the best version of ourselves that we can be. As a result, we really don't like to make mistakes. However, mistakes are an integral part of our growth and development. Some mistakes are better than others, and it's important to understand the difference as well as embrace the idea of making mistakes. I don't know about you guys, but I love a good mistake. 
Absolutely. Yeah. It's a human imperative to get better. You have to screw it up. <laughs> it's the way imperative. we learn. It's a human imperative. You're it is. off with human imperative. <laughs> and it's that's the all way the time we, do, we have this week. <laughs> it's the way we do everything, right? Mm-hmm. To get better, you have to be terrible. You have to make mistakes. You have to correct it. You can make big mistakes. And, you know, there's a little privilege with being in certain positions where you can make bigger mistakes and not pay for them. Um, but... You know, for students, they have to, and for band directors trying new things, you you have to be willing to take a risk. Students have to know that, really, if they sound great in the practice room, they might be practicing the wrong stuff, right? They might not be practicing what they need to practice. And uh, I'm all for letting students, you know, really reach. I had a student um, a few years ago who was a double major on classical bass and trumpet, and he decided that he wanted to do both recitals on the same day, senior mm. recitals, back to that's, back. Sounds like great planning. That's a great mistake. Yeah. <laughs> and he's, he was like totally, he was totally into it. And, uh, and, and uh, his teacher and I talked and um, we just decided, you know, let him, where else was he going to be able to do something like this? Um, and, uh, and, and if he was up for it and wanted to do it, he played both recitals were great and he was completely exhausted at the end of the day couldn't really enjoy the fact that he'd done it um but he's uh you know he did great and uh but willing being willing to take that risk i think is important and then just when you're trying new things as a player um you have to find out sort of what your limits are and where you need to make changes and when you first started walking you were terrible at it you face planted the first time you took a step and you know it's just true of everything. It, it is. I want to, if I could talk about two things, if I could talk from the beginner standpoint and from the professional standpoint, right? Mm-hmm. So from the beginner standpoint, when you're starting out, you, uh, most of you in middle school and high school are listening. You probably heard your band director saying, just go ahead and make a loud mistake and you're afraid to because you don't want to be the one that sticks out in your band and it's embarrassing. And I think if I can speak for all of your band directors, what they're saying is we want you playing with confidence because then if you mess up, great. You're going to mess up, but I'd rather have you do that in a confident manner than in a, a timid manner. That's always that's that's a better mistake to make, right? Yep, agreed. So that's, that's an oversimplification of that side. Now I want to oversimplify the professional side as well. I've thought about this a lot from the recording studio perspective, right? Mm. Now, the recording studio is literally the only place you can fix a mistake, Right. So I'm always, always astounded when I started doing some recording and we do a lot of of recordings of uh, of demo things and uh, uh, publishing stuff up in Indianapolis. So I'll be in there with small groups and large groups and a lot of different kind of configurations. And I've seen a lot of professionals that get in there and they get a little timid because they don't want to be the one that makes the mistake when you're recording. And I have never had any problem with this because I'm just going for it. Mm -hmm. And there'll be times where. It doesn't happen. And if I'm playing lead trumpet and, and, you know, we're going out and and I totally step on it, I will usually kind of chuckle and like, well, I guess we're going to have to do that again. And then (laughs) because here's what I know when I'm going for it, when I get it, that's going to be me sounding my best on the recording. Right. Right. And that's what I want. So if I'm playing less than that to feel safe, even if I get all of the right notes in all of the right order. I don't sound my best playing safe. So what's going to end up on the recording is not me at my best. So yeah, the logic part of me says, 
all right, I'm a good trumpet player, so I'm going to get it eventually. So I might as well go for it because when I get it, it's going to sound really good. And then I'm going to be <laughs> happy with the recording. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. So on both sides, the idea of play confidently knowing two things. One, you're going to make mistakes. If you are going into a performance thinking, and we've all seen this, if I can take a slight tangent off to every solo and ensemble we remember from middle school and high school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How many times do people walk in thinking, okay, I've really practiced, I'm ready, I'm practicing, I'm ready. This is going to be the time. It's perfect. And then <laughs> what ha- here's what happens. You make the first mistake, and then you think, oh, crap, it's not perfect. And in that thought, you're not paying attention to what you should be playing, which leads to the second mistake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then as you go, oh, no, now another one happened, which, of course, means you're still not looking forward in the music and then cascading into what I refer to as the spiraling pit of despair. Yes. <laughs> it's one after another, after another, after another. <laughs> or the idea of how many times people come out of those kind of performances thinking, I made mistakes where I never made them before. And I said, right, because you practice the hard parts, and that's where you were concentrating. So you let up on the quote-unquote easy parts, and that's easy where you make the mistakes. So step one, you're going to make mistakes. It's not an if, it's a when. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So then step two is, would you rather sound your best with a couple of mistakes or not sound your best still with mistakes? Right? Because <laughs> right. so, they're so going to happen. There's yeah. the logic part of it for me. So yeah. That yeah, for me, it breaks great. down to that. I'm like, well, I knowing that it's a given that I'm going to make mistakes because I'm human. I would rather sound my best on all other times, so I'm going to go for it. And this is what we're talking about here. Yeah, the willingness to make mistakes is great. And, Joey, I know what you're saying about the recording. I've done enough of that stuff over the years to know that it's it's crazy for me. Like, I love recording. I don't get wound up to record because I know I got several shots. Yeah, right. Like, that's a, that's a really safe environment to play. Um, so we, we're talking about the performance part of it. I want to dig in a little bit on the good mistakes versus bad mistakes in the in the lesson setting right because i think as you work if you're really prioritizing certain things mistakes are going to happen however if you're trying to stand your ground on staying as relaxed as possible or stand your ground on playing with the sound that you want no matter what register you're in that means you're probably going to give up some other things are going to happen and that needs to be okay right it's okay to miss the note a little low it's not okay to miss it high as Brian says on the pro side, right? <laughs> on the pro um, side, it, it's okay to be a little flat when you play some ascending line um, initially, because that's better than clamping down and curling your toes to get there to make it in tune, right? So that I think there are good mistakes versus bad mistakes. Oh, of course, and not only that. Let's take something like uh, the first movement of the Haydn trumpet concerto, right? Mm-hmm. So, yep. from from what I've experienced and what I've heard. There are there are two notes that are missed more than any others, and on the B flat trumpet, it's the high E flat, yep, and it's the next note that's an octave lower, <laughs> <laughs> and it usually goes in this way. Either the student can't get to that note, and so it just doesn't come out, or you get to that note and go ah and miss the next note. Right, <laughs> so <laughs> so not relieved being, not being able to play that note. It then just gets to the choice of why are you playing that piece of music, but then isn't really a problem if that's all that you're missing and everything else sounds great. That's a right. good mistake. 
But being yeah. able to play that note and then letting up and missing the next note, that's a bad mistake because that's just a concentration <laughs> error. So, right, the idea of if you're playing your best and, and doing everything quote-unquote right, you're playing with a great sound and, and doing everything that you can musically, and you miss something, those, those are all good mistakes. Yeah. And right. this is the awareness part of it, too. Like, I, you know, this is something I try to get to really early with students when they come in is that, OK, tell me about what you just did. Right. Well, I, I missed a note. OK, great. You missed a note. No problem. That's fine. Uh, how did you miss it? No mm -hmm. clue. Right. No right. Idea. I didn't know if I did. I miss it high, low, wrong fingering, wrong partial, whatever. But so dialing in and just being aware of mistakes as they're happening is good, too. There's this great this great old thing from the uh, the inner game of music. Right. Like, and I've used this numerous times with ensembles or individual players, like somebody's struggling with a passage and you say to them, okay, look, we're just going to play it again. And this time I want you to be able, when you finish, to tell me exactly what notes you missed and how. <laughs> okay, great. Play the passage no errors <laughs> right <laughs> suddenly concentration becomes yeah dialed in. yeah really kind of dialed it in but i think and a different kind of concentration yeah right not concentrating on being careful and not missing but trying to understand how you're going to miss mm -hmm. and then you don't <laughs> right yeah and i i know players you probably you guys have probably read about this too where you know people will learn a passage and then play it with their other hand on the trumpet yep. or change fingerings, right? All, just to try to create errors, create pitfalls and mistakes, because if you can get through it like that, well, then you can get through it normally okay. as well. Right, so when I moved uh, to Miami, when I was starting grad school, within a couple of weeks, I was getting out of a friend's car and, they, and somebody slammed the door on my first finger. <laughs> mm. So it was, it was in a splint uh, on my right hand, it was in a splint for the next four to five weeks. Uh -huh. So what does that mean? I'm in school. I'm just starting to work around the Miami area. That means I was playing with my second, third, and fourth fingers on my first, second, and third valves. Oh, wow. Yeah, because my first finger was literally just in a metal splint all the way through. It was mm -hmm. immobile. So I had done this kind of practice before uh, in, when I was learning uh, piccolo. You know, like trying mm -hmm. to get my fourth finger to get better. I'm like, well, shift, what's going to make yeah. my fourth finger? I just shift over a little bit. So this I have found to be a great way to go. You know, so I remember playing a gig with somebody. It's like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, my first finger doesn't work. Like, I can't use it. So, like, how does that work? I'm like, you just play like this, you know. And, <laughs> but what I was doing in the practice room was driving myself crazy. Because you know? right. once again, then the idea is what I do in the practice room is more demanding than what I'm doing on gigs. So if I show up on a big band gig and I'm playing lead, frankly, there, you don't need your third valve an awful lot. Right when right. you so, lead in a well, big band. That was going to be my question. So then you just, you instead of using the octave key, you just hooked your finger on the third valve. <laughs> Is that what you... <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that kind of practice, right? It actually right, gets that dialed in a different way, you know, and gets those fingers, it gets your brain working in a slightly different way that allows for a better concentration that in some cases actually dis decreases the number of just what we could call dumb errors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to go back to this again about standing our ground with with certain things, right? Prioritizing certain things in your practice and letting go of the idea that, you know, that it needs to be perfect. If you're working on one thing, it's okay if that causes mistakes for a brief period of time, because this idea of moving toward the long game, right? Getting the long game right is the way to go. 
I work on this a lot with students, especially when, when we're talking about uh, accuracy, right? Because mm. I think a, a lot of times by the time you get to college, what you're trying to do is make sure that you play all the right notes. That's the first easy thing to identify. Mm-hmm. And what I'm trying to do is have these students play the instrument better and make music. Now, so if they're driving themselves crazy because you'll say, like, well, what happened there? Well, I missed that note. Okay, yeah, but okay, do you know why you missed that note? And it may be because something of four measures earlier is where that started. Mm-hmm. You know, you watch them take a bad breath and then, oh, this just isn't going anywhere. <laughs> you know, and you hear it coming and it didn't happen until then. You know, right. so I said, what I'd rather hear is if you're going to miss something, that's fine, but in the context of playing well, yes, that's different, right? So if you're chipping from above, chipping from above, chipping from above, chipping from above, if it, there are good general rules. If you're missing from below, you're not giving enough to get to that note. You're not really going all the way there. If you're missing from above, you're working too hard. It's mm-hmm. easier than that. So if you're playing a line and you miss six notes and you chip every single one of them from above, guess what? You might want to just ease up a little bit. Right. Or if you're missing all six of those notes from below, then you may want to give a little bit more to get there. But to learn from your mistakes, exactly what you're talking about. Right. But then never giving up the ideals of playing the trumpet well. Right. right? That's where you stand your ground. You stand your ground on the fundamentals of the horn. So if you're trying to play something like we've talked about this before, but back to the first movement of the, uh, of the Haydn, if you cannot comfortably play a high E flat, one, that's just the wrong piece for you. Right. But then if you're trying to do everything you can to make that note come out, you're going to destroy, one, your good trumpet playing, two, a lot of good music, just to try and make one <laughs> note come out, and it's right. not worth it. Right. And it's also not your fault. It's whoever prescribed that as an audition piece right. for high school students. Right. <laughs> yes. Exactly right. But Again. I'm saying, you know, but, uh, you, know, that's, but you, wanna, you don't want to give all of that up. You know, if you're stuck with that, then just miss the E-flat but make everything else sound like a million bucks. This is the one I was reminded of just this past week, student playing um, uh, you know, just a, an easy technical study like J.L. Small, right, mm-hmm. on yeah. that book. But just a matter of getting started and anticipating where mistakes were happening, couldn't, literally couldn't start the phrase. Because, <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Like, to the point where not doing anything. I'm like, look, it, it, you have to be okay with missing as many notes as you miss. Right now, the goal is, you know, moving your air through these four bars, like creating a phrase over these four bars. We're going to play the four bars, and then we'll pick up the pieces after. Well, of course, automatically it gets better because, you know, we're prioritizing sound and line and all those things. We'll go back and sweep up the missed notes at the end. But so, you know, worried about every little note that they're going to miss that, you know, it's just paralyzing. You've got to be okay with making mistakes that way. Because they're going to, again, they're going to happen. I I talk about this uh, a lot with students when I'll say, watch professional orchestras and watch beginning bands. Now, when you listen to a beginning band, (laughs) and I'm a big fan of beginning bands. Love beginning bands. I I actually think beginning band director is the hardest job in music. Uh, The (laughs) idea of keeping all those people on the same page when nobody knows what they're doing. It's It's awesome. close. Like the idea of like, oh, no, like, you know, principal oboe in the New York film. No. Beginning band director is much, <laughs> much harder. It's not close. So, but when you listen to beginning bands, what you hear is these waves of imbalance. Like suddenly you'll hear all the clarinets and then suddenly you don't hear any of them. And then you hear the percussion and then all you hear is trumpets. Because what you hear is when their part is hard, the whole section's shutting down. They right? bail. Right. <laughs> Everybody bails out, tries to figure out what's going on. You know, everything's going on there. Now, so it's obvious 
when those mistakes are making because they're beginners and they don't know what they're doing yet and that's how it works it's totally fine when you listen to professional orchestras when you listen to the best orchestras in the world it is not the case that everyone on stage is playing flawlessly 100 percent of the time that is never happening mm. it's just that those people are at such a high level that the mistakes they're making, one, might be smaller, but two, are adjusting and worried so much more about the overall music and ensemble that they're playing with that you don't even notice when they're happening. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge difference. That's the where you want to get to. There have been times where I have walked off stage thinking, oh, my God, what have I done? <laughs> like, I'm not sure I'm going to be allowed to play trumpet anymore. Mm -hmm. And people will come up and say, hey, I enjoyed the performance. And I smile and I say thank you because that's always the right thing to do. Um, mm -hmm. Now, there have been a couple of those times where I will, I, I, they have been recorded. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to listen to that. And I'm going to hate it because I have focused on everything I've done wrong in that past two hours. Of right. course. So then two days later, I will listen to a recording and I will hear the two or three things that, that drove me crazy in a two-hour concert. And the rest of it, it's pretty good. And I thought, oh, I'm an idiot. <laughs> it's just that, like in the first tune, I made a mistake. And it, since I was leading off and I made something that I thought was obvious and it drove me crazy and it sat in my head. And I let myself focus on that rather than the 98% of the concert that went really well. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a rule. I won't let students listen to their recital recordings for two weeks. That's really good, but most of my students are recording them themselves, and I tell well, them, that, yeah. don't listen. They're like, yeah. but, but, don't listen. No, enjoy the moment, walk away, yeah. then, you know, at a later time, go back. Yeah, of um, course. By the way, elementary band, beginning band, yes. One of my favorite things to do in the non-trumpet activities in which I engage Turtlenecking. 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 Is the beginning. It's band. It's called Bandfest here in Pennsylvania. That's, that's a good name, by the so way. So I go in in the morning. I meet like anywhere between 150, 180 oh beginner gosh. students. They're armed with the five notes they know. Right. And, <laughs> and we, awesome. I've programmed five pieces for them, six pieces. And that night we put on a concert. Yeah. Yeah. Love that day. Yeah. Because they're at a place where they are fearless of the mistakes yeah there's a there and this is the energy that comes with that, that level of group yeah like let's just go for it i'm contributing here this is about me this is about them whatever you're learning all those things but they're just absolutely fearless elementary jazz band is one of the greatest things in the world too they'll actually yes because yeah elementary they'll go jazz for it band, they'll go they for it up and improvise yeah. yes when you get to high school jazz band you see a lot of people going no thanks i don't want to uh, no i won't do this I, I, there'll I might, be those two kids like i'll play yeah, yeah right right yeah. self-conscious but the beginning thing like the places i've seen like elementary school jazz ensemble killing because they'll line up yeah. to play those three notes they know right. you know <laughs> yeah. in an improvised solo beautiful um let me zoom out for a second and say let's talk about making and brian already alluded to this with his bass trumpet double major story but um what about the making the mistakes in like bigger mistakes recital prep right how far do you let someone go to say, no, I really want to do these six pieces on this recital? And you're like, well, you know, that's a lot. Well, no, but I, but my, this is my aunt's favorite piece and I love this and blah, blah, blah. Do you, when do you just sort of go, okay? With me, <laughs> the younger the student, the firmer I am. <laughs> right. So I will always say, I don't think this is a great idea. And if it's a master student or a doctoral student and they push back and say, but I really want to, I say, well, okay. Okay. 
See you at the end. Yes. Yeah. And I have had and I have had some <laughs> graduate students that get to the end and going, Okay, you were right. Now I'm gonna have to do that again. You know, but if it's a junior recital or even a senior recital, and I'll I'll say, you know, I really want you thinking about this. I really want you to have a successful recital. Right. And I think this may be a problem. So that's my own general rule. Yeah. But yeah, we, we want to set them up. We want to set them up for success. But exactly. What, what's the What's the phrase? Uh, experience is a cruel teacher, mm-hmm. but some will have no other. <laughs> it's like great. a Chesterton quote or something. That's beautiful. Um, yeah. So so sometimes you know you just they're going to have to just learn the hard way. Yeah. Um, for recitals, I have had students who want to do too much. Um, and so we'll do like four or five weeks before the recital. We'll do a rundown. Look, let's see where we are. Can we just play the whole thing down? And I'll just make them play the whole thing down. Usually they realize, oh, we're a little, we're a little out over the skis. Maybe we should cut one of these. Skis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, so I think yeah, we we want to set them up for success. But you know, some students just want to. Uh, they want to do it anyway. I did have a student um, last year who really wanted to play um, the opening to the Toot Suite and among the, a whole the, bunch of other stuff. First movement? Yeah. Oh, yeah, the C trumpet movement. C trumpet one. Um, yeah, with a whole bunch of other there. stuff. <laughs> yeah. And um, he, like, he, the program was big and uh, Rachmaninoff vocalese. Um, That's a bit of a face plant. Yeah. yeah. And like, I was like very skeptical and, um, and he was like, no, no, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And he was playing, it was really a fascinating process for me to observe. Um, and he was playing the, uh, the, the toot suite, um, da, da, dee, da, da, dee, da, 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 da. I was like, no, the, those, those notes are not long. And those are short. Da, da, dee, da, da, da. And I went, we went around this circle I think for a month. Um, and he was like, yeah, yeah, I got it. I got it. And I was like, no, 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 you don't got it. You're still playing all those. <laughs> like literally I heard him like two or three times a week for a month. And um, so finally he came to his, his recital jury. Uh, and I was just like, I didn't know how it was going to go. And he was insistent and he nailed everything. <laughs> and Good I man. mean, it was absolutely. And George Rabbi and I were sitting there like, what? what happened <laughs> he was sounded like a million bucks the sound was beautiful and he had all the styles right and so um so we did the three weeks and then he did his recital and the recital was also beautiful he wasn't nervous he he was sort of hamming it up on stage because he was so uber confident wow. um, he was like so in the moment and people were cheering wildly and it was incredibly successful so i just said what did you do because you know some switch got flipped right. And there were two things he said. Uh, he's one. He heard somebody else's recital, and he was like, "I, I don't want that to happen to me." <laughs> mm. And also, he just took the recordings of each of the pieces, and basically put them on repeat every time he had a down second f- between classes, driving to and from school, and then he played along with the recordings nonstop, and he just ingested it, yeah, internalized yeah. it, right. Yeah. And well, it was it was great. Speaking from a programming standpoint, what I used to do, uh, you guys know Bert Truax used to be in, in the Dallas Symphony, and he used of he course used to run a, he, run a, he used to run a camp uh, for high school students in, in uh, the Dallas at Fort Worth area, and he'd bring in a different. He had his own three faculty people and some old students would come and help him, 
and he'd bring in different guest artists every day. And I was one of those people for the years he was running the camp. So the end, what you do is you do master classes all day long, and then you do a recital at night. You have one day to come do your stuff. Wow, so, that's a long uh, day. And he, uh, he always asked me to be like, I need you to be like crossover guy. Come talk to him about this because he'd have different people come in. And, you know, usually like, you know, Ryan Anthony would come in and, and John Lewis would come in and Marvin Stam would come in. And so I was always looking like, well, this is hard to program. What am I going to do for a recital? Yeah, you know, sure. Mm-hmm. So uh, what I did and, and the pianist, and I can't believe I'm forgetting this gentleman's name. He uh, teaches at the University of North Texas uh, and he also plays at the Dallas Symphony and stuff. But he's a very good classical pianist and he's a good jazz pianist. And his name oh. is just Steve, out of my head right now. S- Steve Harlos. That's exactly right. Thank you. Yeah. Steve Harlos. Yeah. So Steve was always the guy. So the first year he was like, uh, yeah, you can do whatever you want. Steve can do anything. So I said, great. So I emailed him. We were talking back and forth. So I would do, I would program every year thinking, let's see if I can do this. <laughs> and there were times where maybe about three or four weeks out, I'm going, I might have made a great error. Because <laughs> what I would do, like one of the years, uh, I would usually do something, you know, I'd usually do something uh, unaccompanied. And then I would do something, you know, standard. Like I did, I did do the first movement of, the, of Toot Sweet, or uh, I did the second movement of the Hummel. Like I put together these different things, you know, like a... A little chopped up uh, parts of, of trumpet rep all the way through, and then end by playing a couple of standards. Now, and of right. course, when you play standards, that's head solo, uh, you know, long time on the face. Uh, uh, so they would usually be you know, about an hour and 15 minutes, you know, kind of just go all the way through. But after a full long day of teaching, for me, yeah. I was two, uh, two things. One, thinking, I should be able to do this, and this will be a fun program to perform. And also, too, I wonder if I, I wonder how this is going to go because it's not something I get to do an awful lot in that context. So every right. year was kind of like, let's see what we can do this time. But in taking that idea of like, well, let's see what happens. Right. You yeah. Know? Willingness to put yourself out there. And yeah. Do it. Exactly. That's great. Risk reward is really helpful. Right. Because yeah. if you're always playing safe, you know, and there there are lots of times where people are saying, well, what we want you to play is, and then you're like, okay, I'll I'll go and play those things yeah. but like the thing i did at bill at your place a couple of years mm-hmm. ago we went on back to back to back days right. so w- we guest soloed with the orchestra you and i played vivaldi that's right and yeah. then the next night i played uh with uh the concert band right when we did that piece with the concert band and then the next night oh, we Twain did show me that's right we yeah. did both jazz bands yeah right, right? and that's yeah. three nights in a row and you you pitched that to me and i thought well, i should be able to do that let's see what happens <laughs> no <laughs> And you did. <laughs> right. But that's, I mean, that's one of those things that's like maybe not the smartest thing, but it's something to undertake and then go for. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then, that's... and then learn from how, you know, how yeah. the whole thing went. This is, I love about the, the, the planning process. Like Brian, you're talking about leading up to the recitals and all that. And there's so many things that contribute or mistakes that could be made. Right. Like, and I've realized over the years, you have to talk to students about building their time into the recital, into the day of. Right. what they're going to eat when they sleep how much right all those things that the whole they thing, might yeah. not think because those are mistakes obviously you learn from too but you don't want the performance to pay you know you don't want them to suffer by some of those mistakes so you try to guide those in as well yeah absolutely. Um, and and the big thing i think the big takeaway obviously other than the willingness is just to view mistakes as sort of this this mercy that happens to us along the way, right? Like disappointment is this great mercy that shows you like, look, okay, it happened, but you can, you know, we can look up and move on from here. And I, and I, I know that all of us have stood up on stage oh. and, and had mistakes where we've walked off the stage thinking, 
okay, so I'm the worst trumpet player on the planet. <laughs> Somebody's going to come and take away my trumpet right now, and I'm not going to be allowed to play anymore because of like you know some serious big ones that we've made in performance. And guess what? It's okay. It's, it can happen. It might happen, and sometimes it will happen. But you're oh, yeah. going. The 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 thing I I try to make sure my students all understand really really early on is, there it's it's a when not an if. So that when you get into that performance and something happens that you don't like, it doesn't throw you. Right. Because it is you are gonna on on every performance you play are gonna do something you don't like. Mm-hmm. So just knowing it's coming, it's like oh well there it is. Oh what do you know? <laughs> that's a, that's yeah, a good yeah. one to have there it, to know. It's also uh, mistakes are also a, both a reality check and fuel for your next level of improvement. Yep. Um, and I think you know you can learn something from from them. And if it's just that, oh, I'm not where I thought I was as a player right now. Um, that's that's helpful information to know. You know, you go to an audition, and the third excerpt in is I don't know. Schumann two opening, <laughs> and uh, and you're on your you're on your teeth, you know, because play, you're playing too softly, or you haven't prepared to be able to play that softly, or they ask you to play it again but softer. Mm-hmm. It's that's information you really need as a player if you're going to get to the to the next level. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So you have to be willing to miss that at another time in order to get it right when it counts. Yeah. Great topic, guys. That was, uh, I'm glad we got to that because it's an important, important thing. But now it's time for No Offense. Practicing what you can already play. <laughs> We're all guilty. Recycling the licks, studies, and excerpts we all know so well, especially when someone in, is in the practice room next door. Uh, but unless you're failing every day or trying something new, you're doing it wrong. So don't practice what you can already play, right? Make new mistakes. This is, <laughs> this is maybe one of the greatest music school problems. You know, I remember as an undergrad walking past thinking, holy crap, holy crap, holy crap. And I'm sitting in there like hacking away. <laughs> People are walking by going, how did that guy get in here? You know, and, and totally. now I'm teaching at a school where I, I have uh, my office. Uh, we're in the, I'm in a nice new building that we got a, five or six years ago. But before this, I was in the, on the third floor of the round building, which if anybody knows IU is historically where trumpet players have always practiced. That's where they practiced. And I will tell you, in the 10 years my office was there, there was more than one or two occasions where I would open a door and I didn't know if it was my student or John Threads and saying, that sounds good. You might want to try practicing something else. Like mm-hmm. I said that because <laughs> I, I understand yeah. the idea of everybody's, everybody can hear me. I got to make sure I sound good, which if you're in a practice room, could not be a worse mindset. Right. <laughs> right. You are not, you want to make sure you're setting yourself up so that when you get to a performance, you have the best chance of sounding your best then. And that means in the practice room, putting yourself through the paces of absolutely stepping on it and, and, and really <laughs> testing your limits. I, I refer to my office as Trumpet Sanctuary. The door closes. It's fair game, right? Yeah. Like, this is the place where you want it to go poorly. <laughs> it's okay. We're going to take some chances. and But, yeah, that's it. But we're, we're all guilty of it, right? Playing and what stuff I, that makes us feel good. And what we hear, you know, on the Internet and broadcast is everybody's best stuff. I mean, that's the whole social media thing, right? You see everybody's best life. Do you think that's what their life is? Do you think that's how they sound? You don't see the process. And yeah. I think the process is super important. Yeah, yeah. I, 
I found this out when uh, we got shut down last spring and mm-hmm. we couldn't meet in person. So what I told my students, okay, here are your assignments. Send me a single take of each excerpt and our, our uh, etude. <laughs> and the honesty of my students, which I appreciate. One of them saying at the beginning, okay, this is my fifth take. This is going <laughs> to have to be it. Because then they became very aware. They'll yeah. listen back and go, well, I can't send that in. <laughs> You know, because right. what people, what, so yeah, if you're watching, if you're judging what you're practicing in your practice room to what other people are posting online, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Ryan's exactly right. People are, are usually, <laughs> usually not putting up anything that they think is going to make them look poor. Right. Mm. Right. Usually. Usually. Yeah. <laughs> so I Even think that might, I think the takeaway here is. If you sound good in the practice room, you're doing it wrong. Doing it wrong. <laughs> totally doing it doing wrong. Doing it wrong. <laughs> well, it's hard to believe, boys, but we've come to the end of another episode. Thanks for joining us on The Open Bell. Stay tuned, subscribe, tell your friends and students, misery loves company. Unless you're Brian, <laughs> who's miserable and hates everyone. So long for now. <laughs> Remember to keep an open mind, but more importantly, an open bell.